This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Let's get into it. Let's talk about it because distribution, logistics, this is kind of where we are when it comes to dealing with the virus. Let's bring in our guest. With us is Marisa Farabash. She's Senior Vice President and Chief Supply Chain Officer at Advent Health. That's a faith-based nonprofit healthcare system based in Florida. They operate, though, across multiple states. And this on a day where global cases from the virus exceed 72.2 million and deaths are surpassing 1.6 million. Wow. Uh, yeah, exactly. Whenever I hear those numbers. Marissa, um, nice to have you here with us. First of all, how are you doing? How's your team doing? Hi, Carol. Hi, Tim. Uh, thanks for having me on the show today. We're, um, we're hanging in there. I mean, we're doing great. We're really getting excited about this vaccine. Um, there's been a lot of planning, a lot of preparation that's gone into this time. So this is a big week. We're very excited for it. So are you giving vaccines at the hospital yet? We're expecting the vaccines to arrive um, on our campuses tomorrow, mm. and then we'll be, um, we'll be administering them shortly thereafter. And I want to bring in also with us is Dr. Brent Box. He's Senior Vice President and Chief Medical Officer at Advent Health. He also is joining us, like Marissa, on the phone from Florida. So, Brent, I mean, listen, this is the day we've all been thinking about. How did you, um, you know, how are you approaching in terms of the distribution, the rollout, making sure that everybody's going to get that second dose? Tell me about kind of the logistical planning you must be, uh, the two of you, in the middle of right now. So, hi, Carol. Hi. I'm glad to join you this afternoon. Uh, you, yes, this is a, it's an exciting week because this is work that's been several months in the planning, and the team um, has been putting together a playbook uh, for, for about two and a half months, and the playbook is um, beginning to be executed this week and, and, and really starting over the weekend. So we're excited to get started. Um, the playbook that you guys put in place, I, I love that you use that word because I've been saying over the last few months, I mean, right, Tim, like nobody had the playbook for the virus, but you guys in the right. medical community, ultimately, they've got to come up with something. They have no, that's, this is what, this yeah. is what you go to school for. Exactly. So, so I'm curious, um, Dr. Box, in terms of the things that you guys have been working on and anticipating and putting in place, is it kind of playing out like you anticipated? You know, it, it really is. There's um, a lot of fluidity to what we learn every day. Um, but we had a group of about 50 of our experts uh, and leaders across the system work hard on this over the last couple of months. And, and we, we were able to really track with the federal, the CDC, the FDA, the guidance that was out there to put together a playbook um, that, will, that will really make sense in the safe administration of this vaccine. So, Dr. Box, how are you deciding who's going to get the vaccine in these early stages? So we are following, uh, Tim, we're following state and federal guidelines. Uh, we're, we're really following it to the T. Um, it's basically based on the National Academy of Medicine uh, phased approach, um, which is in line with the CDC approach. So we're really focusing on those healthcare workers, our team members who are taking care of COVID patients every day. The, the healthcare workers with the highest risk of being exposed to the virus. 
Which makes sense, right? We've been yeah. hearing from a lot. Marissa, come on in on this. So logistically, Tim and I have had a lot of conversations about these are viruses that have to be kept at incredibly cold temperatures. Uh, and I think they can, you know, without that, they only last for a very short period of time. So what's been involved logistically in you getting prepared for receiving the vaccine and making sure they're kept in a safe place? Talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. Well, as Dr. Box mentioned, you know, we've, we started our planning many months ago um, and really at that time really thought about, okay, how, do, how are we going to store vaccines? Where are they going to get stored? Are they going to get stored everywhere? And where we landed was really a hub and spoke model. Mm-hmm. Um, we did secure some additional ultra low freezers so that we could increase capacity at, at our hub sites. Um, but a lot of planning, a lot of preparation, um, you know, backup plans have gone into place as well. So um, really proud of the team for, for really coming but, together. And and forgive me, I'm going to jump in because, I mean, we're, I know our audience, I know Tim and I, like we love the nitty-gritty of, of the details. Like what else? Like you said, backup plans. What have you had to kind of think about to make sure you've got a backup plan for it? Is it the refrigeration? Is it other things? Yeah, that's a great point. You know, as we think about the need for that ultra cold storage, um, even just dry ice machines, you know, how do we and then how do you how do you manage dry ice and how do you get trained on that? So really, again, you you just mentioned some of those details and and the team spent a lot of time um, really incorporating that and making sure all aspects of this, you know, have really been thought through well and, and are outlined in the playbook that Dr. Box just mentioned. So take us through visually what this looks like. Is this a room that will be dedicated for the next few months with a line of people outside just yeah. walking in one after the other getting shots here no so the the room where where we're storing product is going to be in very different place than where we are administering the vaccines um, and so, you know, our storage is, you know, is, is in highly secured sp- spaces and, um, we, you know, where we can properly store and, and keep the refrigeration and freezing needs there. Um, and then our pods and our administration will be occurring at very specific sites with, um, again, very uh, practiced protocols in place and, and um, really walk, being able to have our employees and right. have our team members and others come to those spaces. Um, Dr. Box, w- wondering how long you think it will ultimately take to vaccinate your staff and those frontline healthcare wa- workers? What's the timeline you're anticipating? And when do you start to ant- anticipate the vaccine actually going out to the general public, those most vulnerable first? Okay, let me first um, answer the first question. I think that, um, you know, we're, we are set up and we have planned to vaccinate uh, vaccinate our team members uh, as fast as the vaccine comes to us. We have some very large uh, systems here in Florida, and for example, we'll be vaccinating um, at two administration pods here in Orlando at a thousand team members per day, so that we 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 anticipate getting that vaccine out to our team members as quickly as it comes. You know, it's not clear how fast the vaccine will come to the community, but um, we look forward to participating in that and we'll be prepared as a health system to to help our communities in every every place that we operate. Dr. Box, how are the communities where your hospitals are? What are the numbers that you're seeing? What is the hospital capacity like in these places? You know, it really varies across our system because it's it's occurring at different rates in different states, but our 
our communities um, obviously are, are stressed, just like our facilities are. Um, but in general, our, our facilities are doing well. Um, they have really um, stretched um, to accommodate the needs of the volume of patients that um, COVID has presented to us. So our team members are, are really doing great work, and our and our hospitals are are you know, really standing in there for our communities. Dr. Box, is it like what it was back in the you know kind of the high points or peaks um, for Florida? You know, our 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 peak was in the midsummer. Right. We are definitely seeing a slow rise uh, right. here in Florida right now. So it's we're not we're not seeing the same volume here in Florida that we did in the midsummer. Uh, but we're prepared for it if it comes. Marissa, I want to bring you back in here and get more on the logistics and, and planning for the vaccine rollout at your hospitals. How are you planning for different vaccines that need to be stored differently? We, we know the Pfizer vaccine has to be stored at a very low temperature, but that's not the story for, for other vaccines that could potentially be coming in the next few months. Yeah, that, that's a great question, Tim. And, and certainly, you know, this has just been such an amazing feat, you know, across many different areas to come together and be able to manage this complex, uh, very rapid. But for us, you know, it it really is translating to being able to manage um, through a single system. And so we're using our single system regardless of the way that it's being stored. So regardless of it, whether it's in an ultra low freezer or whether it's in a refrigerator, it's all making its way into a system. So we can account for it that way. We can look at our data analytics that way. Um, And that's really, you know, that really helps guide our future decisions in this space. Um, Dr. Box, last question. Just got about 30, 35 seconds here. Do you anticipate, I don't know, end of summer that we are back to kind of a more normal way of life? What are you telling your teams at this point? And just quickly, if you could. You know, we're telling our teams a couple of things. Number one, we're strongly encouraged the vaccine. And number two, we're strongly encouraging our team members and our communities to continue doing what makes sense. You know, PPE, Uh, wearing masks, social distancing, avoiding large gatherings, all those things that we know that really make a difference um, while while the time goes by and the vaccine uh, becomes, you know, more and more prevalently in our population. So those are the two things that we're focusing on, and we are very hopeful that those two together will bring us to that place in the summer you mentioned. Fingers crossed. Uh, good luck with everything. Uh, we know it's it's a huge task for everyone involved in this process. Dr. Brent Box, Senior Vice President, Chief Medical Officer at Advent Health. Also, Marisa Farabash, she's Senior Vice President, Chief Supply Chain Officer at Advent Health as well. Both of them joining us on, on Florida. It's a massive task. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. So we've got a Fed meeting this week, last of the year that's happening on Wednesday. And what a year it was. Yeah, Jerome Powell. <sighs> breakout star of the year, right? Totally, totally. I mean, really stepping up and stepping up quickly. And that's exactly what Rich Miller gets into in a story currently in the magazine. He's economics reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone from the nation's capital, along with Jill Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week on the remote access from Brooklyn. I was teasing it earlier, Joel, and I said, Jay Powell's got to get his cape out again uh, in this Wednesday meeting. I mean, he has really just been unbelievable, certainly dealing with the pandemic. You mean Clark Kent? Yeah, totally. <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, <laughs> remember, he's the one that just looks like a civilian. So yeah, I you know I think we when we talked about just people who have had um, instru- extraordinary impact on the year, I think Jay Powell is right at the top of that list. And 
uh, yeah, we could have certainly had some Superman-themed art <laughs> to uh, go with this story. But, you know, I think the other thing that Rich did a really good job of pointing out in this story is that it's not only just in the context of this year, it's actually sort of in the context of Fed shares as a whole. Like, if you if you look at that pantheon, Powell, if you, you know, if this was his, <laughs> this was the end of his term, he would be right at the top of that pantheon with people like Paul Volcker. And the Volcker thing is exactly where I'll hand the mic over to Rich and say, talk to us more about the Volcker wrinkle of the story in, in, in your reporting, because Volcker's um, obviously been a person that um, has also been talked about in that pantheon context. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it, it is kind of amazing that uh, uh Powell has had a relationship in some sense with Volcker since the early 1990s. I mean, Volcker obviously passed away a year ago. But, uh, you know, Powell was, uh, he sort of recounted, you know, he was a middle-ranking Treasury official, and he said, you know, here's a guy who now rules the roost of the Fed saying, I was frightened of even meeting this guy. You know, he got <laughs> so the six-foot-seven, cigar-chumping, you know, in, uh, imposing policymaker who tamed inflation. Uh, but now Powell, you know, he's, you know, he's not six, seven, he's like five, ten, but then he's, uh, but he's in his own way, uh, he's, he's made his mark. Uh, you know, it, it, what do they say? A crisis makes a, makes yeah. a man or a woman, right? And he rose to the occasion, but it's not only that, he's also, uh, sort of, uh, turned monetary policy up on its, uh, on its head, you know, uh, uh, Volcker sort of pushed unemployment up to like uh, over 10 percent to to bring down inflation, but now uh, Powell wants to push in unemployment down maybe to 3.5 percent or below to try to bring up inflation. It's like you know jujitsu type thing. But what is what is the legacy of of Chair Powell at this point? I mean, I don't think it's too early to start talking about it, but I mean, how will he remem- be remembered for for how he changed the Fed? Well, I mean, I, th- I think one in the crisis, he, he took the playbook that Ben Bernanke, the former Fed chair, had during the uh, financial crisis, and he sort of, you know, as we say in the piece, you know, was on did it on steroids. So mm-hmm. he pushed he pushed the Fed into lending to areas where they had never gone before. Uh, the Main Street uh, business uh, facility hasn't been as successful as they hoped, but he, 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 they've done some lending there. They bought up, you know, high-yield bonds. Uh, they've bought up high-yield bonds. They pushed, you know, the envelope on, on, uh, on, the, on the risks they were willing to take. And he also, you know, Fed chairmen have been uh, basically since uh, the 50s when, when the sort of Fed broke away from the Treasury. The Fed basically used to provide finance for the Treasury, just effectively the, the Fed kept during the war and the immediate aftermath kept yields on um, on the debt that the Treasury was selling to finance the war effort low. Um, and then you know, there, there, there was uh, uh, what's called the Fed Treasury Accord, and the Fed became, quote-unquote, more independent. But Powell realized, you know, this is, you know, we're facing, you know, like an yeah. epic crisis. I, I've got to, you know, put away that kind of squeamishness about, you know, cooperating with Treasury. And I've got to, we, we've all got to go, you know, we need mm-hmm. all government, <laughs> you know. Uh, and that's and that's something that we may see have to see again, you know. So you know, he's made his mark in a number end, of areas. To that end, I want to rewind the clock a little bit to a part of the story that I actually, I didn't know this. Um, but in the before times, 
like just the before times, uh, February 22nd, Powell was actually in Saudi Arabia and was at a meeting of central bankers from the group of 20. And I'm, I'm wondering, um, you know, what, how, how much of what he saw there informed what came out of that? Um, and, and you tease a little bit about that. I'm just wondering, like, what, what did you what is your reporting um, gathered from what he what he learned when he was in Saudi Arabia for that for those couple of days? I think like a lot of us, you know, in February, um, uh, you know, he was thinking, OK, yeah, I know there's a coronavirus, but it's, uh, you know, it's going to be contained to China and maybe the immediate, you know, countries. You know, we're we're a long way away from it. You know, it's not going to be a sort of uh, earth-shattering uh, event for us, the United States and the Fed. Then he went to Saudi Arabia. He meets the uh, Korean delegation there, and he starts hearing from the Italian delegation and said, oh, <laughs> so he calls back to, you know, the States. And it's a weekend. He calls back to the States and says, you know, when I come back on Monday, you know, midday, I want, you know, I want I want to go through all the options we've got. Yeah. And so he flies back on Monday, you know, come, comes down the ramp from his plane, opens up his, you know, email, and he's, he's got all these texts from staffers saying, man, the stock market's cratering, you know. <laughs> so, uh, and then it was just like off to the races. You know, they, they did more in a month than, than, than uh, the Bernanke Fed did in, you know, a couple of years, all well, in, you know, all in the space of March, basically. Hey, Rich, just got about 30 seconds, 40 seconds left here. I mean, he has done a lot and he's moved quickly. And we're, I think the world would say, and certainly folks in the U.S. would say they're grateful for what he's done. Time will tell, though, versus, you know, some of the steps he's taken, the changes in focus, letting maybe inflation run hot, you know, to kind of help out the labor market. Time will tell whether or not all these strategies are smart. For sure. I mean, that's a very good good point, Carol. That uh, you know, it's it's it. There are risks, right? He's, yeah. he's, he's 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 pushed all the chips on the table, and there are risks. I mean, you know, some people are worried about inflation, but a lot of other people are worried about you know another stock market bubble or really you know housing boom or something. Because you know, he's he's basically gone all in, and uh, yeah. as you say, we'll see. You know, right. but. I just think about all these Fed chiefs, though, and let's like crisis after crisis, whether it's financial crisis or Janet Yellen dealing, you know, with also some of that as well and getting mm-hmm. the economy right. going. Right. It's like, and then the pandemic. Rich, great read. Thank you so much. Rich Miller, economics reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone from Washington, D.C. Joel Weber, along with his puppies, letting them in and out. <laughs> Heard that a little bit in the background. Editor at Bloomberg Business Week. Find that story. It's in the magazine online on the Bloomberg. Uh, great read, right? In yeah, terms it's a great read. Jay, Jay Powell and his legacy. We shall see. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer on Bloomberg Radio. So, Tim, we know we didn't have a playbook, or at least most of us didn't, on how to get through the global pandemic. Uh, that's for sure, right? We've been talking about that kind of nonstop. But I think we kind of maybe do now, thanks to a new book out by David Rubenstein. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. I mean, David spoke to just the biggest names out there about leadership and what they've learned from managing crises in the past. Yeah, and leaders from all walks of life. He is the co-founder and co-executive chairman of the private equity firm, the Carlisle Group, chairman of the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, the Smithsonian Institution, and the Council on Foreign Relations, also president of the Economic Club of Washington, D.C. He's also a colleague. He's host of Peer-to-Peer Conversations on Bloomberg Radio and TV. Uh, The book is entitled How to Lead, Wisdom from the World's Greatest CEOs, Founders, and Game Changers. Uh, Great to have back with us uh, this time on the phone from Bethesda, Maryland. David, nice to have you back on Bloomberg. 
Thank you very much for having me. Hey, listen, so you've been talking to leaders for a long time. And in your book, you write, you point out that when you meet somebody, you kind of want to go there. You want to say, so how did you become right. a leader? How did you how did you rise up? Why are you so fascinated? Well, I guess when I was little, I was always interested in learning how other people became prominent and famous. And I used to read about them. And I guess I couldn't stop asking people questions. So my mother would say, you know, be polite. Don't ask mm-hmm. people so many questions. But uh, I wasn't able to resist. So dozens of leaders you, you spoke to for this, Dr. Anthony Fauci, Oprah, Jeff Bezos, Marilyn Hewson. Um, is there a common thread that runs through all of their journeys that you took away from the conversations? Sure. All of them uh, came from, I would say, middle class, lower middle class or blue collar families. None of them were really extremely wealthy. Uh, they worked their way up. They came from uh, a situation where they typically had some failures earlier in their career. They all tended to have a vision. They were very persistent. They knew they wanted to get something done. They were willing to share the credit with people, highly uh, honest and a lot of integrity. And they rose up in in, in situations where there was a lot of uh, crisis, you could say. In other words, great leaders overcome crises, and many of them overcame crises and really showed their leadership skills during those crises. So, David, I wonder, if you're not a leader as a kid or as a teenager or in college, does that necessarily mean you won't be a, kid, a leader later in life? I mean, do you, do you have to start showing some traits, basically, early on? I wondered if that was also a commonality between some of the folks you've talked to. Most of them were not leaders when they were very young. In fact, if you take a look at the last, let's say, dozen presidents of the United States, maybe only Bill Clinton would be somebody who would have been said, as a young person, this person could be president of the United States. And the same is true in other areas. I certainly was not a great leader when I was younger, and uh, many people were not famous uh, when they were young for being Rhodes Scholars or Supreme Court clerks or, or Heisman Trophy winners. People who become great leaders later in life basically have a tortoise and hare approach. They've worked their way up. They've learned some skills. And ultimately, luck uh, helps them get, get forward. But uh, if you think of your, take your own high school class, whoever the, seat, the, the senior leader was, the mm-hmm. student body president, what happened to that person? You know, sometimes, yeah. you know, you don't know because they didn't become famous. <laughs> right. I often thought the people in my high school class were going to be conquering the world, and then I've never heard from some of them again. Yeah, it's interesting. Mine, it mine is a pulmonologist in California. He's doing well. <laughs> he's doing okay. Yeah, he's doing okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> he's busy during the COVID pandemic. But, um, David, it struck me that you said that this common theme is that the people came from this middle-class background. I'm, I'm wondering, right. we talked a lot about this idea of a K-shaped recovery. The middle class has gotten smaller in the United States do you think it's still possible for people to work the, their way up to these positions of leadership, or has it become so difficult in the United States with student loan debt and the cost of college? The American dream, I think, still lives on, but there's no doubt there's an underclass in our country now that, for racial or other reasons, has fallen further and further behind. And I think COVID is going to bring them even further and further behind, because if you don't have technology in the, in the COVID era, you're just, you're just not able to really survive. So think about all the families that don't have high-speed Internet at home or can't afford to have child care for their children or can't afford to send them to schools right now. So that's a sad situation. So I do think that the American dream is becoming more elusive for many, many people in this country. But there are obviously are people who still believe in the American dream and have come from reasonable backgrounds and, and can work their way up. And obviously some people from the worst backgrounds can work their way up. 
but the odds are harder and harder. Well, when you look at the kind of bigger picture, David, in terms of our economy and the future of it, and you watch what's going on in other nations like China, who's definitely on a mission to certainly develop some more sophisticated industries and, and certainly develop their domestic eco- economy, do we need to figure out some new policies and what might those policies be so that the American dream is not more elusive and that it is you know, available to more and more Americans, especially at the lower socioeconomic scale? There's no doubt that our creativity in this country is the envy of the world. Silicon Valley and all the kind of technologies that have been developed there are the envy of the world. But we don't have a population base that China does. And as China becomes more and more capitalistic, I think it's actually going to, you know, bypass us in size in terms of economy. The United States will probably be in our lifetime the second largest economy in the world, not the largest. But you can still rise up and have a very great life in the second largest economy in the world. But we should recognize that China will be a competitor increasingly in the, in the economic world, and it's going to be difficult for some of us to accept that fact, but it's a reality. If we had one new policy that the incoming Biden administration would put into effect, let's say in their first year, that would help some of those Americans that have been left behind, what, would you, what do you think it should be? Well, I would say uh, no member of Congress can get their pay unless we pass bipartisan legislation uh, that addresses some of the problems. Obviously, that's tongue-in-cheek. But clearly, uh, the Congress... I actually like it. Yeah, I'm here, just going to put it here, here. <laughs> but anyway, go <laughs> ahead. So I, I think, obviously, the, the, the country doesn't work as well as we would like it to work. Yeah. And we haven't seen bipartisan legislation for a long, long time. And, and we, we have a perils of Pauline every time the budget is about to expire. So we have to do a better job. I don't know whether the new president can do that or not. But clearly, the, the system isn't working as well as the founding fathers intended. That's for sure. We only have about 15 seconds left, but who is one leader right now who you wish you were able to speak with for the book that you haven't been able to speak with yet? Well, I hope to interview Joe Biden when he uh, takes office or before he takes office. I'd like to talk to him. I've known him for a long time, but I have never interviewed him, so I'm looking forward to that. David, if if you'll indulge us, I'd love to go through some of the names on your list because it is quite a lineup. Um, And just kind of what comes to mind in terms of their leadership and just talking to them. Jeff Bezos. Well, Jeff is a person who started relatively late, uh, when you think about it. The company's not until 1994 that he started, but he's now built it into the company, which is now one of the best-known companies in the world, and he's become the richest person in the world. But he still has a great deal of, of, of uh, humility, I would say, and a pretty good sense of humor. And I, I think the interview was one of the most interesting ones in the book. Think about it. Uh, many, many times the richest person in the world over the past half century have been people who have been relatively reclusive. Howard Hughes, nobody really knew him. J. Paul Getty, nobody really knew him. Uh, Bill Gates and, and Jeff Bezos, both are pretty accessible, and you can get a hold of them, you can see them, you can talk to them. It's not, not quite what it used to be. And I love in your book that when you talk about Jeff Bezos that you had an opportunity, is it right, to have a 1% equity stake in the company and you passed yes. on it? <laughs> well, we actually had an opportunity to have about a 20% oh, we okay. passed on that. We did get, we did get 1%, oh, you did get 1% but we sold me. that at the IPO, so we thought it was going nowhere. That was our biggest mistake. It happens. <laughs> Could be worse. Uh, what about when it comes to someone like Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who we lost earlier this year? Yeah, she was a person who weighed about 100 pounds when I interviewed her at the 92nd Street mm. Y in New York. Uh, 90 of those pounds were her brain. Mm. Incredibly smart person, but it's very difficult to interview in this sense. Um, when you ask somebody a question in an interview, you expect an answer within a second or so. But she would pause for 20 seconds or so, and you'd say, oh, is she having a senior moment? Can she not hear me? It was an offensive question. But she was actually thinking about what mm. she wanted to say and then would say it in paragraph form. So she was very, very good. 
Well, and what about someone like Oprah Winfrey, which is just, I think for all of us would just, I think, be so nervous sitting down with her. But what was that like? Well, it's hard to interview the greatest interview of them all, perhaps, yeah. but uh, I've known her a little bit, and uh, so it wasn't quite the first time I'd met her, so it was it was okay, and uh, it, it went well, but, you know, she didn't really need an interviewer. I mean, she's uh, she was giving a master class on how to be interviewed and how to interview, so I was just mostly sitting there watching. But what do you want to know as a leader? Like, these, this is all about leadership, and what was it that just kind of stood with you about her? Well, she is somebody that came from very, very poor right. background, and now that she's become very famous and wealthy, she's trying to give back. She's involved in philanthropy, but she, her greatest skill set, she would say, is not being an interviewer, but being a listener, and she has empathy with the people she mm. interviews, and that's what she says is her strength. What about Yo-Yo Ma? Well, Yo-Yo is somebody I've come to know pretty well through the Kennedy Center, and he's a person that, you know, yes, he's the best-known and the best cellist in the world, but that's not what he cares about at this point in his career. He's about 65 years old. He cares about other things. He wants to perpetuate the idea that the arts make people better better people, better humans. And so he's really interested in, in, in getting people to learn more about the arts, not just listening to him play. So he spends at least half his life now trying to get people to become more familiar with the arts and appreciate the arts, all kinds of arts. And so he's an infectious personality, and he's on a change a little bit because he's a person that doesn't like to shake hands. He likes to hug people. And in the, in the COVID area, it's harder to hug people, so he's probably had to change his technique there. Well, I have to say, um, one of the things I like about the holiday season, David, is the Kennedy Center honors. Um, I still talk about Led Zeppelin right. and <laughs> Hart uh, right. doing Stairway to Heaven. There's like nothing like it. But I do look forward to it. And I think about the importance of arts and culture in our community. And I do wonder about the hit that it is all taking because of the pandemic, everything being shut down. Yep. You know, what are your hopes and expectations when we get on the other side of this? Well, the performing arts world has been decimated, and I would say probably 10% of performing arts uh, arenas or the state or, or, or uh, venues are not going to probably reopen again. Wow. Uh, the Kennedy Center, we are struggling financially as well, obviously Lincoln Center as well, but we will survive for sure. But there's no doubt that, that we had to lay people off. We've had to furlough people. The Kennedy Center honors will try to do it again in May in some kind of virtual, partial, mm-hmm. virtual, and partial in reality. And then we'll try to do it in, in, in December probably as well, maybe have two this year or next year if everything works out. But it's hard to port, put the whole thing together right now when everybody's in a COVID world. Well, David, what do you think the role of the federal government has to be in terms of, you know, we can go through a list, whether it's cultural institutions, um, arts and entertainment. I look at the restaurant community, which I think is part of the fabric and culture of our, you know, major cities and our society. And they are also getting decimated. What's the responsibility of the federal government where it feels like that has really been forgotten? Well, yeah, suppose you work in a food truck, suppose you work in Mm -hmm. a uh, restaurant, uh, you know, you're probably not going to be uh, employed that readily right now, and it's a tough situation. Many of these people are not people who can readily go get another job so so easily, so it's very tough. I hope the most important thing we do in the next week or so is pass some legislation that will actually help with the economy and help these people that need it the most. Um, so it, it's a real sad situation, but the Congress could go home without passing legislation. I think that's really going to really hurt the economy if that happens. Well, do you think that would have happened when you were working for the Carter administration, that we would have had a Congress that went home? 
Well, I would say we had our challenges for sure, but there was bipartisan legislation in those days. Yeah. Uh, no major bill until the Obama health care legislation had ever passed Congress without some bipartisan support. And that idea has gone away. Republicans are afraid to support Democrats and vice versa. So I, if Joe Biden can do anything, it's hopefully that he can get people to support some kind of bipartisan compromise at some, some time, because mm-hmm. otherwise we're just going to be stuck with this kind of same kind of perils of Pauline uh, uh, Congress for, for many, many years into the future. One thing I've been thinking a lot about during this time is the idea that a lot of people have been struggling and it's been a difficult time for a lot of people, especially for artists. But I also wonder if we'll look back on this as a time when perhaps some of these artists created some of their best works. Is there any indication at this point, David, that you are seeing that from emerging artists, from up and coming artists, from musicians around the world? Well, you can see Paul uh, McCartney just come out with an album that's been very highly rated, and uh, other artists have as well. Willie Nelson has a new album out. A lot of the older artists are coming out with great things because they, they've had to stay at home a bit, and they, they're doing these things by themselves often. I would say young artists will clearly uh, be, be uh, experimenting now, and uh, I, I just worry that some people may get disillusioned because they can't afford to support themselves. Yeah. Willie Nelson and Paul McCartney probably can, but some artists who are just struggling are probably not in a position to really... Uh, earn any money right now. Many artists are just um, not able to really get any so-called gigs right now because there's no place to perform. Hey, I want to go back to your list of of leaders that are in your book for a moment. Um, As we mentioned, we are talking just for our audience, David Rubenstein of the Carlyle Group. He's got a new book out, How to Lead Wisdom from the World's Greatest CEOs, Founders, and Game Changers. You have some CEOs, and I think about Indra Nui, former CEO of PepsiCo. Tell me a little bit about, you know, what stood out for you. And, you know, she's a rare breed as uh, a woman, as a black woman, you know, at the head of a S&P 500 company. We just don't have a lot of them. Well, I think at the time she was running Pepsi, she was the only woman, immigrant woman, running a Fortune 500 company. Um, she is uh, uh, somebody that had a technique that she described in the interview where she would write uh, letters to the parents of her senior employees, giving them a kind of report card. And obviously, uh, when your mother and father get a report card saying you're doing a good job, they will call you up and say, what a wonderful boss you have. And it kind of tended to bond uh, the employee with ingenuity. It was a very good technique. And obviously, it's one I thought of maybe I should do as well. When you look out at the landscape today and, and what's happening across the business world with COVID, is there a leader that stands out who really emerged during the pandemic as taking a, a clear leadership role? Well, there's one person who has stood above everybody else, and his name is Tony Fauci. Yeah. Um, although he was criticized for lots <laughs> household of household name reasons. now, right? Well, yes, but I mean, he was criticized for lots of reasons, and he's had to have uh, security because of a lot of the threats made against him. But the truth is, he did tell the truth from the beginning, and uh, he was basically somebody who was trying to get things done. And uh, sadly, we have 300,000 people that have died. Hopefully, we can arrest that with the vaccine and other things. And I do give the credit to the administration for coming up with the vaccine. It was a heroic effort to get it done in less than a year. Usually, a vaccine takes four to seven years. Um, so if we hopefully can get people to take the vaccine, which is not easy to do, and we can let people who are healthcare professionals really um, have a big say in what's going on, I think we can make some progress by the middle of the year. And forgive me, I misspoke. Indra of course, an Indian American. So forgive me for how I characterized right, her. Right. Yeah, forgive me. Um, David, but I do want to ask you, why aren't there more women why aren't there why isn't there still at this point more diversity when it comes to corporate america we've been talking about this for decades why are we not seeing it you understand leadership you understand like why why isn't it happening 
Well, um, a couple of reasons. One, you know, since civil the dawn of civilization, men have tended to be more dominant than women for all the reasons that we probably know. So it's been only in the last, you know, what, 100 years that women have had the right to vote. Right. Um, and only in the last 20 years that a woman has been taken seriously as a CEO. Very few. When Catherine Graham was the CEO of Washington Post, yeah. she was the only woman running a, a, a Fortune 500 company. Um, we now have made progress, but not as much progress in some ways as countries around the world are doing. So we have a long way to catch up. There's progress, but it's a long way to go. We do see certain states and indeed even measures federally, I believe, to try to encourage diversity uh, for public companies. Pipelines and yeah. Yeah. Is this, the, is this the right way to do it, David? Well, some countries have now mandated that there have to be a certain percentage of women on boards. Right. And that's not been done in this country, though, um, so much. But there has been proposal. The head of NASDAQ recently suggested that NASDAQ listed companies um, have to do much right. more than they're doing. And she's, of course, used to work at Carlisle. Adina Friedman, and we'll see whether that has an impact. Uh, I, I suspect, you know, if I live long enough, I will live to see uh, more diversity. But I would wouldn't hold my breath that all of a sudden they're going to be, you know, a majority of women running Fortune 500 companies in the next 10 years. I don't think that's un, unrealistic, but I do think it's realistic to see progress being made. Hey, David, just to wrap up, uh, your book is all about looking at talking with, you know, all these different leaders, uh, finding commonalities, just getting their story and what it took to rise up. You know, is there anything that's changed in your leadership as a result of these conversations? Well, I realized that I'm not as good as a leader as I wanted to be. I've learned a lot from these people. And I said, oh, I got to work harder. So I'm going to start working harder to be a better leader than, I, than I've been. So constantly learning. Do you have a favorite conversation? Well, I, I really enjoyed the one with Jeff Bezos. We did it in front of 2,000 people, and he had a great sense of humor, and people were cheering. So it's always good when you have an audience, and, and, yeah. and that's, that's probably better. I like doing interviews with a big audience. Well, I know our audience uh, certainly enjoyed listening to you. David, thank you so much. Uh, such a wonderful chunk of time. We really appreciate it. David Rubenstein, founder and co-executive chairman of the Carlyle Group, host of the David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations on both Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg TV, and his book, check it out. came out in September, but uh, it's great reading, especially for now. And I'm thinking as people are unfortunately hunkering back home or home for the holidays, how to lead wisdom from the world's greatest CEOs, founders, and game changers. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it is time for the drive to the close. We've just got about 11 minutes left in today's trading day. It does feel like we're taking a little bit of a a breather, a break, if you will, on this Monday as we continue to watch those virus uh, headlines, those deaths from COVID-19. That certainly will will make you kind of stop for a moment, right? Yeah, 300,000. Yeah, in the United States alone. That's staggering and we're getting ready for what we think will be probably a rough four to six weeks here so let's bring in our guest yana barton she's co-director of growth equity at uh, eaton vance she is with us once again on the phone from boston yana nice to have you here with tim and me uh how are you how are you doing are you still working from home I'm working from home and my kids are uh working from home as well yeah 
I know. <laughs> You're in good company. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, what's it like around the Boston area? Well, um, you know, we're all working remotely, but I think as it relates to just, you know, the sentiment and coming, kind of bringing it back to the market, who would have thought that would have made up as much, um, you know, work as we have? The market is up over 15%, but I think the most important story is that the average stock has lagged, mm. and that's good news for stock pickers, and that's what we're kind of focused on as we're um, awaiting 2021 with the rest of the world and kind of turning the page on 2020. There's a, a lot of room for an average stock to continue to lead into the next year. And I, I think that's the most uh, most important headline that probably is not getting enough attention. So what are the what are the companies? What are the stocks? What are the names that you're watching? Absolutely. So um, again, going back to the fact that it's been a very narrow uh, market in terms of its leadership, um, only tech, consumer, comp services, and materials have outperformed, which means that we've got majority of the market that has lagged and top five stocks, just to give you a stack, uh, stat, stat, has driven more than two thirds of the overall market's return. So that means that those top five had had a return year to date that has been averaging about 50%, while the rest of the index uh, has returned 9%. Right. Uh, so we're focused on healthcare industrials and other pockets that have lagged because you're getting both the value proposition and growth. All right. I know those those few, you know, handful of names off the charts. But, you know, every time, Yana, somebody says, uh, yeah, yeah, it's done. It, let's go into the value names and go into the rest of the market. And then all of a sudden those names just take off again. So how do you reconcile that? Uh, and I know momentum sometimes creates momentum, but these are huge, successful uh, companies. Um, and you kind of understand their market dominance. Absolutely. I think growth can continue to do well and value can to do can do well as well and i think seeking those growth at a reasonable price story will never go out of style and that's why i keep going back to healthcare because it's been such a laggard and you're getting true value because right now healthcare is trading at over 25% discount on a next 12 month basis on a multiple while having a very solid top line and earnings growth story. So you can pick up that growth, mm -hmm. but actually get it at a discount relative to the market. Same with industrials. So I don't think you have to be forced to make a choice. I think right now, balanced approach and one that is active and very selective um, will do well in the next year. How much attention do you pay to stimulus or lack thereof and that changing your own outlook for 2021? Mm -hmm. Um, plenty. Um, and I think you bring up a really good point, which is if you look at the performance to date, much of it has been driven by, st uh, by sentiment. Um, again, you know, if you look at just the multiples in the market at the beginning of the year, there were about 17 times. And right now, they're just shy of 22 times. So basically, you're paying up uh, for earnings on the come. And much of that sort of sentiment shift is driven by our optimism on liquidity. And obviously, the vaccine and a lot of things going right for the overall global economy. So um, obviously more stimulus. And so far we have very uh, positive both fiscal and monetary support is a good thing for both the multiples and the market. So when you gather your team virtually on a Zoom or whatever platform, Yana, that you're using, um, mm -hmm. what are the things that you say, listen, we got to make sure we're, we're keeping an eye on this and that, you know, in terms of kind of the unpredictables, uh, I don't want to say black swans, but the things that could either be 
ultra positive for the financial markets or ultra negative for the financial markets come 2021? That's a great question. I think, you know, investing is all about looking forward. And unfortunately, when you're predicting the future, there's a high probability that you will be wrong. Just read all the headlines that we started <laughs> 2020. There was like, wait, so why are we talking to you then? I'm just going to put that out there. Yes. <laughs> but I think, you know, what we're asking our analysts is tell me what the world will look like three to six months from today, when unfortunately, you mentioned the 300,000 um, statistic daily, uh, you know, occurrences of of picking up COVID, but I think we're going to start tracking, um, you know, what percentage of the population has been vaccinated, and that will be a really great pull to drive back that consumer into the market and us going back to doing things that we haven't done in months, right? And there will also be a lot of recovery, particularly within the consumer space as it relates to travel, restaurants, all of those sort of areas of the market that have been left for dead just because we have to have this shift in both the consumption and just the way we live everyday um, life. Mm -hmm. So I think what we're asking them to do is kind of go into the future and tell me what the earnings recovery will look like. Mm. And many of these companies are going to recover. um, And we're already seeing evidence of that, which is a little bit of pull on top line drives a lot of margin recovery. Just very briefly, because we only have about 10 seconds left. What is your timeline for sort of this return to normalcy? Well, that's a tough question. I think, you know, 6 to 12 months as it relates to uh, stocks because they're a leading Hmm. indicator. But in terms of just economic activity, I think it will be longer. Um, And I think, you know, a lot of it has to do with the vaccine, people feeling comfortable and us getting access to it. All right. Um, I guess our kids not work, not doing homework in school or school at home, I should say. Yeah, definitely. Right. Uh, Yana, thank you so much. And by the way, Yana, uh, managing the Eaton Vance Focused Growth Opportunities Fund, which is uh, really beating most of its peers over the last three years and five years. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.